Welcome back to World Beat. To remind you, we are sitting here with Dante Garcia. So, Dante, we're now moving into your time into the uh, what we might think of as the tech sector. But but even that, I want to start with unpacking that because it seems like everything is called tech these days, <laughs> you know, uh, and that's that's been true for a long time. But there is now this um this dynamic almost it's like, it's like the wizard of oz in a lot of ways where there are things that are dressing themselves up as tech that boy it's it's a true marvel stretch in the english language if you ask my untrained ass about it um, i think the best example i can think of in recent memory that folks might also remember is uh, when we work was coming out and they build themselves as this tech company complete with you know the weird charismatic leader and all the i mean and i've been in them they're they're nice offices mm-hmm. i used to have one um you know and, and the places are a real pleasure to go to but fundamentally what we were looking at here was a real estate giant not anything associated with like a facebook or a google or something like that so what what exactly is tech that's the that's the best way i can put it in 2022 Oof. Let's see. Well, I think, like, as you mentioned, what what is tech and what is not? Um, it all exists along a spectrum. Um, but these days, so much of the world is being cannibalized by quote unquote tech, so much more of the physical world and operations and logistics and communications, um, which was done via paper, roads, um, office buildings are now being done by uh, email, Ethernet cables. Um, it's a new for it's a new communications information logistics um, network that has kind of sprung up and is really cannibalizing a lot of the 20th, 19th century, 19th, 20th century business, uh, even just the, the way we've organized society. Um, and in, in that context, uh, tech is very sprawling. And in fact, I think just recently, I'm not exactly sure. I think in the last four years, uh, the data industry has actually surpassed the fossil fuel industry in terms of wow. uh, the amount of capital that, that flows through it. So it definitely is marking a large change um, in the zeitgeist of, of the world itself. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems to me that one of the differences between something like a tech industry and, say, fossil fuels is that so much of so many of these companies are not tethered to a geographical location in the way that vehicles were for Michigan or um, or any of the uh, you know you use fossil fuels as an example and we think about um, you know all the coal miners in Appalachia you know Texas of course has these big oil rigs but for that to work the oil actually has to be there right mm-hmm. you know it uh, mm-hmm. unless you're in refinement or something but. Tech being so amorphous in terms of its geographical specificity, and I mean, you might make the case that, yeah, there, there really ain't a bunch of European tech companies. Um, I mean, Spotify, sure, but beyond that, uh, we're starting to reach, um, you know, and, and I guess Wirecard was one, but I don't know how if they want to hold on to that after that whole thing. But, um, but, but how, how does that influence? its influence and, and this definition, the fact that it's not associated or tethered to a certain place. Yeah. I, I, hmm. I'm intrigued by the, the, you know, in some ways tech, the internet, 
I mean, maybe broadly, we can even simplify it down towards the internet, but I know tech is, you know, again, a very broad spectrum based kind of thing. But I would say um, there are definitely utopian aspects to it. The dispersion of knowledge, the dispersion of connection, people being able to connect with people that are like-minded, not just within a five, a 50 mile radius or, you know, within their state, but, but much further across our entire continents. Um, so there are definitely the utopian aspects to it. Um, but given the incentives of capitalism, there are also exploitive aspects to it too, um, where uh, the people who are in infrastructure who participate in the tech uh, economy uh, can be targeted, exploited, and, and, and rearranged. And so the, uh, it's part of a larger globalization process. I wouldn't even kind of, I would see it as part of the, the, a much larger, yeah, turning towards a globalized economy. And, and this tech slash internet communications and infrastructure uh, really has helped drive and spur that forward much quicker. It's been part of that innovative unfolding process. And when do you think the perception of the industry changed? Because I think about, you know, back when a lot of these companies were first rolling out, hell, I could even date myself and talk about MySpace. You know, all you youngins probably don't remember those days. But if we think about, the way that Facebook and Google and um, Apple, Microsoft, for a long time, you know, your use of the word utopian, I think, is really apt because they were seen as these titans that could bring about all these new ideas and these new frontiers. Um, and, and part of some of argue what contributed to the dot com crash in the late 90s into the 2000s was that we got a bit out ahead of our skis and people started coming up with these ideas that the um, technology just wasn't there for it yet. But even even after that, mid 2000s, these companies are everywhere to be. Silicon Valley is the best place in the country, possibly in the world. But now people are looking at these companies with more of a side eye. There's a lot more skepticism. Um, there, there's a belief that they are engaged in nefarious things most of the time. When did that shift occur in your assessment? I, you know, I would encourage any listener to, um, to actually go look up Jaron Lanier as a person, if they're interested to really learn more, because I would say that person is one of the authorities, um, who's, uh, both been an insider of the tech industry, uh, the web uh, space, but also has been very much a black sheep and, and critical and have a very strong critique of, of all that's unfolded. So things that I share are a little bit in, really informed by what I've learned from, from him. Um, you know, I, I, I think one piece just from a political economy perspective is the, the, the tech, the utopian projects um, of open source information, other things like that. Um, that were provided some of the scaffolding of early um, tech space. A lot of those efforts, I think, have been captured by the short-term interests of corporate uh, structures. And so, you know, you have incentive or business models that are about manipulating people's emotions. Um, we have, uh, uh, I could go on, on on that side, but I think really that's that's one of the big turning points is the, the corporate interests and the short-term interests that are driving a lot of the actions and uh, companies that we're seeing today.
Mm-hmm. And around, because I think about like in terms of what might have spurred that, I wonder if it was around the 2016 election, because that's the time that I remember. And I mean, you know, you were inside the uh, you were inside the fortress at that point. So maybe you have a different perspective. But that's the first time I can really remember seeing a, a real mass of skeptical coverage of how exactly like Facebook worked. I mean, now I remember being in high school and we would like read these articles yeah. about like the privacy policy was like a book unto itself, you know, bigger than my grant book back there. Um, but that was kind of seen as more like, ah, oh, it's kind of funny, ain't it? Like, why does Facebook need all this? Ha ha. But only after the 2016 election did that seem to become more scrutinized and people were like, no, we actually need to look at this. Like we need to drill down. Like, yeah, why is my newsfeed giving me things that they know are going to um, get me all fired up? What's your perspective on that? Yeah. Well, well, I think two, two big things happened in that moment or came together. One is that half of the United States population um, was sideswiped was, was shocked to learn that everything that they saw on Facebook, uh, that Hillary was going to win, Hillary's on the run, mm. uh, streaming ahead. Trump is, you know, a silly person who's not, you know, will have no chance against Hillary. Um, what they were receiving through the communication, through the, their Facebook streams was so far from the truth. Mm. Um, and Facebook's, algorithmic structure where, uh, again, this is a human-centered design process where they're centering the desires of the humans, which we've discovered what we really like as humans are pieces of information that affirm our own identity, affirm our own politics, affirm our own perspective. And so what did Facebook feed every individual human that was on, on Facebook? Exactly that. Despite its anchoring in truth, despite the possible discourse or difference that the very person living one story above them in an apartment might have a completely different perspective. But those two people received completely different customized channels and streams of information. And so at the 2016 election, when Trump uh, came through and actually won, I think that was a big shock to a lot of people of, holy shit, what is this? Um, but you're also speaking to the other part, which is the, um, the outrage, the, the virality, the, um, the engagement model that Facebook has used, um, which one doesn't have to be tethered in reality. So many of the communications and bits of information that are put across Facebook aren't true. Um, But what they do do is they they move our emotions. They make us feel angry. They they compel us into emotion. And um, again, work from Jaron Lanier and stuff like that points to how clearly uh, the emotion that Facebook is best at making us feel is anger and frustration. Um, because that drives engagement and drives clicks and things like that. And so I think 2016, again, when half of the, the U.S. population was shocked to learn that everything they were seeing in their Facebook feed wasn't as they expected it. Um, and then to take a step back and actually really look at the business model, I think that was a, uh, a relevant point for a lot of people where things, the, their world came crashing down a little bit. The, I don't know if you'd call it irony, but that's the thing that especially folks on the left took shots at Fox News at for a long time was that Fox News's whole game was just tossing red meat into the shark tank because they knew it was going to get bites. Yet, in a full circle kind of way, 
it's now not only a new media, but a media that rightly or wrongly is associated with a center left paradigm that now relies on those same types of tactics. Um, which I don't know what that says about like humans or Americans or, or whatever you know audience we want to peg with that, but that that seems to me to be a consequence of a a, a leadership class and an industry leadership class that mm-hmm. is disconnected from the effects of what that has on ordinary folks where. Um, yeah, it is great for revenues. It is great for driving time on app, which is really the biggest metric for any of those companies. Yep. But it is going to result in uh, a lot of cultural divides, right? And these new culture wars and the lack of a, a shared national narrative, uh, which do have effects for the United States as standing in the world. That um, and, and that to me actually leads me into another thought because one of the things I think that also came out of that 2015-2016 wave of new eyes on the tech space is we've heard it all the time now. It's a very white male sector, just demographically yeah. when you look at the leadership yeah. and even maybe down to some of the grunts. I mean, that's really what it is. But what are the practical effects of that? Like, what what does that actually mean in terms of who this industry is made for? and how they interact with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think you, you, I think you had a great guest uh, previously on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I think we see that uh, largely in the algorithmic structures and databases and content of information that's kind of being assembled to run these applications um, that we see. Um, of course, the, the, what are the implications? Well, each of us carries bias. Each of us has our own uh, biography. And uh, when a certain demographic is one of the major contributors to this infrastructure, those biographies are, are kind of brought in their, their own perspectives. Um, so I, again, I, I think your past guest uh, on the podcast could probably has probably did speak to it, I hope, uh, but also could probably continue to speak to some of the, the actual implications. Um, but it, 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 it results in continued exclusion. Uh, uh, environments, uh, working environments, also even community spaces that don't actually feel uh, inviting for other people who don't match that identity. Um, and maybe in reinforced tropes um, as well. Uh, I you know I just recently saw, I, I was really excited about, um, I think it's Google associated, but there's now all this technology that's allowing people to, t- to transfer text to images through AI generation. I'm not sure if you've, you've been mm. following this, George, but... L- little bit, but uh, definitely give the rest of us a scoop because uh, Lord knows oh, I won't be able to summarize it. It's incredible. You can you can put in large meandering paragraph, like an entire meandering paragraph of like coral reefs hanging out with the sun and a Monet-style green painting liquid landscape. And the AI will take all of those terms We'll, we'll go through, run through its visual databases and the parameters that in, inform how it relates to that, that information and will actually produce astounding visual graphics based on everything from a single word to entire paragraphs of text. Um, That's wild. Really exciting, but also it reflects again some of its own uh, limitations. Uh, one of the data sets, if you type in the word Asian, 
unfortunately, you're going to get a lot of porn. Um, that 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 floods. God damn it! Uh, which is not the same if you type in maybe like white or other things. But again, that's the the bias with. And again, I'm not sure who assembled it, but it, the biases that exist within the data sets that are introduced into the artificial intelligence or the machine learning that that's processing said things. Mm-hmm. Well, and I've I've made this point on a prior episode. Um, and I should say it ain't mine. It was uh. I can't remember who made the original tweet, but uh, it was brought to my attention by um, Ruha Benjamin, who's a, a AI scholar and a sociologist, where um, the gentleman in the tweet said, you know, man, my GPS just told me to turn on to Malcolm 10 Boulevard. And he says, at that moment, I knew there was not a single black programmer in that damn room when this thing went out. Yep. And just between that, um, you know, another example that's often cited is uh, the the um, scanners on hand sanitizer not working for folks with darker skin tone because the laser ain't, mm-hmm. you know, it, it ain't uh, designed to pick that up. So, yep. the, and I wonder, I mean, this seems to create a bit of a feedback loop, I would think, where as more yeah. non-white folks look at all these technologies not being built for them, sure, there's some of them that yeah. might get the uh it, it might light the spark to enter the industry to make change but it seems the more ready effect and this is what kathleen Semenu talked about as well is that instead you get populations who say oh th- this ain't for me i might be really interested in it but there's just no way yeah. i'm going to be able to succeed in there and they either figure that out ahead of time or maybe they get in and glass ceiling ain't too far off Th- this seems to be one of the genesis genesis rather of uh, that project you did, Story Two Designs. Mm-hmm. Talk about where that came from, because the the whole idea, as as you've described it, is it was a POC led worker owned design cooperative. Mm-hmm. So where did that idea come from, and uh, how did that project unfold? Yeah, yeah, you know, I I was one of a few founders. Um, so you can ask different people and you get slightly different perspectives. Uh, for me, my participation and development and contributions to Story2 Designs really came out of my organizing experience. Um, we touched on it briefly in the past about flashy actions and things like that. Well, 2014 through 2016, there was a lot going on in the Seattle area around climate actions. And uh, I was fortunate enough um, to be part of some of the core organizing teams that did a lot of like really bold, fierce and courageous direct actions um, around the region and really helped to make that tactic more normative in the larger organizing ecosystem. Um, But it can't stand on its own. Um, We need that deeper long-term organizing. We need, um, you know, legal work. We need policy work. We need a number of approaches and relations to move things forward. And after that, I'm looking how else I can contribute really sitting with like, wow, I do think a lot of people of my generation and younger know that this world is unhealthy and unsustainable. We might articulate it differently, might have different personal experiences towards it and things like that. Um, but I think there's a general sentiment that's, that's in the zeitgeist of, of millennials and under that things aren't adding up right now. Um, and what, what made me excited though, was that, you know what, there actually are incredible organizations here in the Pacific Northwest, but around the country and even further, they're actually doing really good work. If only they could tell their stories better. 
And so uh, with that in, in, in heart and hand, I um, was really interested in trying to build a, a design firm that could actually help tell those stories um, and, and do that, that communication support. Um, and then, of course, my experience at college being a, a political economy kid, I was like, well, here's a chance to actually really learn how, quote unquote, capitalism works. Let's start a business and let's get our hands in the dirt and really see, can we, can we build a, a worker cooperative? Mm-hmm. instead of a standard small business. And, and so what did that look like in practice? Like how did the organization yeah. function and yeah. what were um, really, what was the support network that was created here? Yeah. Um, well, over a period of four and a half, five years, um, you know, we, we grew an organization um, to about a team of seven. Um, it was, uh, a worker cooperative, which for some people, listeners may not know, uh, we still were a standard C corporation, um, but we adopted cooperative bylaws. Um, and through Washington State, I'm not even sure I can remember the RCW 2126.23. Anyways, there's some Washington some State code that, yeah. exactly that actually is based, I believe, largely around agriculture, because I think the, the history of worker cooperatives, especially in Washington, have an agrarian context, um, but nonetheless allow us to run our business a little bit differently. And distinctly, what that means is that the profits that are generated from this business are distributed across the member owners of the company itself. And so within our corporation, within our business, uh, there was two sets of stock that were distributed to participants. One was uh, member stock and the other one was common stock. And member stock is what allowed each individual to actually vote and participate and be a member of the cooperative itself. Um, And in doing so, that's what allowed us to have a much more participatory process. So we were a team of seven, seven folks participated in steering the ship uh, of the organization, um, which was really exciting and uh, a lot of fun. and I guess maybe the last thing that I'll just say is that uh, in doing so, you know, we're able to work with hundreds of nonprofits, uh, both locally and across the country, um, help raise hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, engage folks. Because again, for us, it was a hard business to kind of enter because uh, the segment that we we're getting into, uh, a lot of grassroots organizations don't have large budgets. Um, and a lot of the fierce organizing projects that we wanted to support have even smaller. And um, finding a, a model which would allow us to, to support those folks um, required some, some innovation. I'm just proud of the team that was able to, to work on there because we were able to support small organizations like that through the organizational structure that we had. And how well did that organizational structure mess, mesh Excuse me, with such a dynamic sector? Because it's often talked about that, especially in this space, the tech space, one of the one of the the issues that young startups can find is that if it's just a couple of guys, decisions can move relatively quickly. When the buyout happens, now they have to send things through a bureaucracy, which is going to slow down the decision making process. Now, you didn't have something that was quite that mm-hmm. um, complex, but no. the fact remains that this is a this is a sector where major changes could happen an hour after we're done talking. We could get some news that totally game changes everything. How does a more deliberate 
decision-making structure that is more inclusive? How does it keep up with an industry that goes a million miles a minute almost by design? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, you know, in some ways, the worker cooperative was much more of a small business than a tech company. Mm. Um, you know, when I left, we were processing about half a million in, in sales, uh, but that was a team of, of, of seven with an office and, and other things like that. Um, so the scale of it, I don't think is the same as, as tech companies. Um, additionally, because we were one, a worker cooperative, and two, because we were thoughtful about who was within the organization and really trying to challenge, like you said, some of the tropes of, you know, tech space, who's a web designer and things like that. We usually don't think of folks of color um, or femme folks. And so uh, being thoughtful about that, um, our audience, our customers, uh, our community, uh, a lot of these progressive projects, uh, organizations across the country, we're really actually excited to finally get to work with a set of, of web developers, designers, and other folks who looked like them. Um, and I think that actually was a really strong point. It allowed us to be much more collaborative with the communities that we engaged with. Um, and so I'm, I'm really proud of that part. Well, I would certainly hope that, that would be a model for so much of what is now being described as Web3. That's where I'd like to go in the next segment. So everybody stick with us. We're going to be right back with Dante Garcia. You're on Worldbeat. Beat. 